So I don't have to do anything on my end. Uh, nope, and we have started recording. Okay. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> Hello, everyone. How are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where we have the discussions that inform, entertain, and empower educators to be the change. I am your host, Dr. Will, and I am here with Dr. Kim Law. How are you doing, Doc? Great, and how are you? I'm doing well. Today was a a good day. I filed some warranties and uh, did some accounts for for teachers, and uh, you know, did a couple of troubleshoots. And outside of that, today was a pretty average day, I guess. Yeah. So it's, all it's good. always it's always interesting in education. There's never a dull moment in education. So I had a pretty productive day as well. Awesome, awesome. So. We're going to be talking about talking to Dr. Law about uh, STEM education, East STEM Academy, where she is a director. Uh, we'll talk about innovation in education, and as well as you know, maybe she'll share a little personal story of hers uh, that'll get everyone all motivated. Uh, so, for those who are watching, will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Law? Will you introduce yourself? Okay, I thought you. <laughs> I'm here. Uh, I am Dr. <laughs> Kim Law, and actually, just call me Kim. Uh, I am here in uh, Southern California, um, specifically in the Riverside County area. Um, I am an, uh, I guess you can say, I'm an immigrant uh, from Vietnam. My family. I was born in Vietnam, and um, when I was eight months old, my family. Uh, came here to the United States to, to seek freedom, um, actually religious freedom from communism uh, after the fall of Saigon in 1975. So, uh, but we were boat refugees and my father at the time had worked around boats to help build the boat that we escaped on. And we um, were picked up by US Navy ships uh, when we were ten, uh, our 10th day at sea. And then we ended up spending a couple of months in a Malaysia um, refugee camp and we then found a uh, sponsor family, or actually a church, a U.S. Catholic mission in, in Utah sponsored our family, and we came to the United States and set foot um, uh, on American soil with just five U.S. dollars in our wallet. And since then, I've learned uh, from my parents that, you know, uh, this is the American dream. We have the opportunity. we got to work hard and be passionate about it and, and not to take anything for granted, especially our freedom. So uh, here I am. So I grew up in, we eventually relocated from Utah to Southern California because that's when we reconnected with other family members who were also uh, refugees from the first wave and the orderly departure program and boat refugees. And so in 1980s, when we then moved to Southern California, and I've pretty much been here since uh, 1980, grew up in, in uh, 20 miles east of Los Angeles area, uh, grew up there in the El Monte City School System went to school there and then I had every dream to become a, a doctor, medical doctor. I'm not sure if that was because I really wanted to or was that the typical, okay, you know, you're of a, a Asian family, you're gonna go become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. And so with that, um, I had every dream or at least I thought I was gonna go into the medical field. Then I um, was the first in my family, I grew up in, in uh, we were five of us, five children, I am the fourth. Um, from the oldest and so I was the first one to go to college and so it was one of those where I knew my parents had made all these sacrifices for me so I'm going to do the same for them. Went to the University of Redlands, got my undergrad in biochemistry 
and I really had every plans to go on to uh, medical school. But one summer I had done some internship with Loma Linda, and it just occurred to me, I was, you know, I just didn't feel um, connected working with sick people. You know, I mean, I, I, my goal was to help people, but I didn't want to help in that way where I was trying to, to do, I guess you can say, intervention. Um, I just ra would rather do preventative care or, you know, help uh, give forward prior to any other issues. And so it was just kind of depressing in a sense, working with sick people. And, and I thought, okay, maybe this isn't for me. So I had, um, so I thought maybe I'll go into the medical field, but through uh, lab research. And so I actually had a professor tell me, you know what, what, the best job, you need to go back and get your master's or continue your education um, if you're not going to go to med school. So the best job to take to go be able to go back to school is teaching. And so I said, okay, you know, and, and I knew nothing about teaching. I didn't go through any teacher prep program. And so I was told, oh, it's easy. You know, you're done by 2.30 and then you can go on and, and, and you know, at, go to school, take evening classes, get your master's and so forth. So I, um, my first year of teaching, I started in 19, I believe it was 1999. So at that time, the state of California issued emergency credentials, and I'm not sure if it was a shortage of, and that was when we were transitioning into the California state standards. So I'm coming in and, and everyone says, oh yeah, you know, with the science um, background, you can get a job very easily. So, you know, just go and apply. So I went back to my district where I grew up and uh, one of the principal who, were my, who was my former teacher said, yeah, I'll hire you in a heartbeat. But going in, I was just so worried about standards, lesson plans, grading, and I just, you know, had no, foundation or, or no, um, I guess you can say coaching on classroom management. So I struggled that first semester and I swore up and down. I did not like those kids. Why did I go into teaching? This is not my thing. And um, I actually had an acronym for my students and I called them, wow, worst of the worst. And I thought to myself, this is just, this is not for me. And I had every intention to quit. And I think a lot of first year teachers, and that's why we can't, you know, we have issues retaining our teachers because of some of those issues. And then um, it was the Friday before winter break that I was so excited to be able to not see these kids for the next three weeks. And that's when I was hit by a drunk driver that evening going to a uh, company party with my husband at the time. He was my fiance. And um, that obviously changed my life. The drunk driver hit me. My car had done, uh, my car did cartwheels down the freeway embankment. And so I was in a coma and everything on my left side of my body from my skull to my arms and my legs, everything was pretty much crushed. So I was in the hospital in a coma. And so during that time, I still wasn't aware of what was happening. I, I remember waking up and asking why I was in the hospital, what had happened to me, why did I have stitches, why did I have pins in my legs? And so I had visitors and, and one of uh, my coworker, one of the teachers uh, next door to me, she brought a bag of letters and she said, he, you know, these are from your students. And I was reading them and I didn't realize during that short period of time, where, where I, what I saw as these kids were giving me headaches, I didn't realize I was making an impact in their lives where some of these kids said, you were the only one that would look at me and smile, or you know, I, you're the mom I never had, and so forth. And so at that moment, I realized, seeing the images of my car and knowing what I had gone through, I realized that God had given me a second chance to live. And this was my, you know, he had a a mission for me and, and he kept me alive to finish that mission and so that is to stay in education. So 
Um, I took the rest of the year off, obviously, on um, disability, but I came back uh, my second year, and I continued on since then uh, with the, with you know, I was very intentional about making connections with my students. Regardless of what it was I had to teach, I had to make connections with my students. Wow. So... Okay. Now, you know, when I, when I saw the video uh, that uh, Azusa Pacific uh, University University did, yeah. did and, and I'm looking at that going like, hmm, this is powerful. Uh, <laughs> you know, because it's interesting because, I mean, you took that as a sign of this is where I need to be. Right. As opposed to this is a sign I got to do something different with my, you know, with my life to pursue something different. But you said, hey, this is where I need to be in the classroom with these students. Right. Yeah, I was ready to quit. But just sitting there in the hospital, I remember looking out the window of the hospital room and I, I thought to myself, OK, I can do one of two things. One, be angry at the world that, you know, I have scars on my face. I have, you know, I may not be able to walk again. My toes were partially amputated. I, I had all reasons to be angry at the world, but I thought to myself, you know what? I'm alive and that's what matters. I'm alive and I made impact on the lives of over a hundred students in a short period of time. So I knew that I had a purpose and I had to continue that. And so I, in, I was very purposeful in taking the route of, you know what, God gave me the second chance and I'm just gonna be very thankful and I'm gonna continue to do, fulfill his mission and do my work, do his work. Mm. Okay now, okay. I don't even know we can, uh, uh, can we top that? I don't know. Uh, wow. Uh, so how did your personal journey impact the person and educator you are today? How did my journey? Well, I think just, well, growing up, seeing my father and hearing the story of, of you know, I, I guess when I went through high school and, and college and I, and I started to take Asian American studies, I better understood, um, the Vietnam War, because in all honesty, growing up and just some of the images and pictures I saw in the U.S. history book, the world history book, it was not matching up with the stories my parents were telling me. And so as I grew older and I appreciated more and I asked them more, um, you know, hey, tell me about that. And so when I heard stories of, of, you know, how there were just dead bodies floating on the water, yet we got through it and our boat didn't get um, hijacked or, you know, robbed by, you know, Thai pirates and all of that. I realized how lucky and fortunate we are. And so I would ask my dad, me being the science person, okay, dad, how did you plan this? What, what did you do? And so he said he spent years just studying everything from the wind to where, you know, what beach were they going to leave from, the ocean currents, the, you know, the tides. I mean, who thinks about that, right? We think, okay, just jump in a boat and go. But he said he, he, he was very strategic in what he did in the planning, but he said what was most important was having that shared vision with the people that were willing to follow. And so just hearing that and, 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 and extracting the leadership component of his story, I realized, you know what? I want to be like my dad. And, and when I go into education and I just don't want to be the, you know, the teacher, I guess at some point I realized I can make more of an impact in education and, and really be an advocate for equity and, and for access to all students if I go into the leadership you know, route rather than just stay in the classroom. And so as I took on the leadership route, just my dad's leadership style of the shared vision and leading by the heart is what inspired me. And so 
I think just remembering and going back to how my father, you know, led our escape and, and, and six, 79 people in his little village, I realized, you know what, I need to be like him. And so his leadership style inspired me, which is leading with a shared vision, involving all stakeholders, letting them have a say in it. My dad said even the women had a role, which is, you know, do this, do that. The kids had a role. The adult men had a role in, in this um, vision of, of leading. And so I realized that's how I need to lead when I'm leading a school or an organization. So he inspires me to have gone into, he inspired me to go into educational leadership. Mm. So you live by the quote, you can't be what you can't see. What does it mean to you to be an Asian woman who works in STEM education? Well, going back to, um, you know, first the quote, um, you can't be what you can't see. I know that when I talk to students and, and you know, oh, I want to go to the STEM Academy. Okay, why? Because I want to be a doctor and engineer. Kind of going back to what I said when I was a kid. But what they don't realize is within the, the medical and engineering field, there are so many different jobs, so many different, I guess you can say, career paths. And our students don't know that because all they see, whether it's in the TV or through the books, is, I don't know, doctor, engineer, nurse, you know, maybe a few other. And so with that quote, um, I'm very intentional when, you know, through our program, I, I try to invite guest speakers and STEM speakers. We have a STEM speaker series. I'm very intentional about inviting different kinds of, um, you know, STEM professionals to come and speak to the kids because I know that that can be, you know, all it takes is just one person to connect with the student and say, okay, that's what I want to be, or this is the route I want to go. So with that, um, for me, as an Asian American in the STEM field, um, just even being a female, I think going through, you know, my undergrad, you know, the biology classes, I would say was pretty gender neutral, I guess you can say. But when I got into the physics classes and the computer science, it was just me and you know, maybe another female, and then the 90% the of the class were male. So it was very difficult, but I think what got me through um, some of those challenges were the professors who were females. And so I think having seen female role models or even, um, you know, underrepresented, uh, you know, Asian uh, professors as well, that helped me just kind of stay the course. So folks who earn their doctorates, make up 1% of the population. So it's kind of cool when I think about it. What made you pursue a doctoral degree and how has what you learned in your EDD program influenced how you lead your school? I would say, um, so you know how I said I wanted to become a doctor and so I didn't go the medical route. And so I was telling my husband, I said, he goes, you know what? He goes, Kim, you're very stubborn or you're very determined. And, and so when you say something, you mean it. So even though you didn't get a medical doctor, he said, I really think you only went to get your doctor in education because you still wanted that doctor title. I said, no. Um, after I had gotten back from my recovery, I had, remember, I was on an emergency credential. So after I got back, actually, when I was in the hospital, I remember reaching out to um, my college, uh, a college professor at Cal Poly Pomona, which is a CSU, um, California State University here in Southern California. I reached out to him. I said, look, I know I want to be in education. How do I get my credential? And, you know, and so he talked about the master's program. So he actually was visiting me in the hospital to do an independent study so I can start some of the coursework. 
So after I had finished my master's, I thought, okay, I'm done. And he said, you know what, you need to get your doctor. And I said, well, why? You know, that's just more money. You know, I got to take out a loan. And he goes, he said, no, he said, you have the willpower. He said, you have the desire to make more of an impact and, and have an influence in education. You need to get your doctor. Don't stop here. So I just went and, and I looked at some schools and immediately Azusa Pacific University um, had my attention because it's a Christian um, based university and, and with the core values of, of you know, Christ, um, you know, scholarship and just servant leadership, I realized that was a school that I needed to go to and it was close to home. And so as a teacher, I was, um, I started my doctor program as a teacher and then it carried over when I became, um, went into administration. Okay. So now I want to throw this out there to you. Um, your hooding, uh, how did it feel? When you sat there and they caught your name and then, you know, how they put the hood over you. I, right. what, what was that feeling like? That feel, I, you know what, it, it, my parents were sitting, well, actually I was um, invited to be the grand marshal. As you know, I don't know if you know that APU has used my pictures to do all kinds of advertisements <laughs> and they just, you know, I guess they saw my story as well. And so I was invited to be the grand marshal to open the gates because there's um, it's symbolic of opening the gate to not, you know, to the it's not the end of the road, but it's the beginning of another journey. So I sat up front and I had um, VIP tickets for my parents. So they were sitting right there. And so my son, he's five years old or four years old at the time. And so the first thing that came to my mind was I looked over at him and I wanted him to see me like I had seen my father. And so if it was anything, I just wanted to make sure that he saw me. You know, and I made sure my husband, you know, hey, if he's on his iPad, get him off. I want him to see me because I want him to, to not necessarily get his doctor, but just the perseverance, the sacrifices, you know, and, and what my parents did for me and for us to come to America to have the freedom we had. I wanted to make sure that he saw that I was doing that for all students as well as himself, because one day he may be one of my students. And I want to make sure that what I will give to him, I give to our students as well. So I wanted to make this. So what was going through my mind is I want my parents to see this because I did it for them. And I want my son to see it because I'm doing it for him and his generation of, of, of peers. Mm, it was, it was just such experience for me. Cause I just remember, you know, one that day, cause I had, you know, my parents were there, right. uh, brothers and sisters were there. And it was so interesting because the first thing I remember was how hot those robes, that robe is. <laughs> heavy duty yeah yes i'm sitting there i'm like whoo i said when is this graduation gonna hit the show in the road come on you know <laughs> and then you you know you get there as you know and then they you know hood you and everything and and at first i told my wife that i was going to do the electric slide on the stage right and my wife's like no you're not gonna do that so you're gonna be dignified uh so i, I didn't do the electric slide but when i when the graduation was over and we were just sort of out uh, my pops, who is not one of those praising individuals, right, told me he was proud of me. And that was proud. I, I don't even know if, if that was the first time he's ever said it, but he said it. And I had to fight back the tears. I had to use every male DNA I had right. to not let the tears come down. And, and, and I had a little pitiful looking face and my wife took a photo <laughs> and I look at that when I see that photo I'm like oh my gosh I'm so is it framed 
No, she didn't frame that one. <laughs> but I was like, oh my gosh, look at that little terrible face. Oh God. But, but just the experience, because I always ask people, you know, like when it's over, how do you feel? Because not many people know that journey we go through to get there. Right. And so I just want to ask you, like, you know, about that. Because, yeah. It, yeah, it, 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 it was the feeling of, it wasn't even for me. I, I think, you know, a couple of things also ran through my mind. is like, you know, when my father, you know, left that sandy beach of, of, of South Vietnam, you know, did he realize this is what he will see in, you know, 40 years and just things like that. Or like when he set foot on America and made all these sacrifices for his, his kids, I, you know, I thought to myself, you know, I wonder if he would was expecting to see this. And so it really, at the end of the day, I, my doctorate journey was really for my parents. And for my my son and my you know my husband my family because you know as you go through the journey and I'm sure your wife knows it's late nights the paper writing hey take the sun out because I need to you know finish and so all of that it was you know you at the end of the day when you get that hood you get the degree it really is for all the people the backbone of your life that supported you all the way through oh yeah oh yeah and I never one of the things I guess that got me e emotional was just thinking about you know, my father was born in 47. Mm. Now, think about 1947, United States in Mississippi. And so we're talking colored only water fountains and all of that. And to do that, and then, you know, I, I spoke to my aunt, uh, my favorite aunt, by the way, Aunt Alma. And when I spoke to her, she was like, well, how does it feel to be the first doctor in the family? And I was like... I'm getting chills right now. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get out of right. the conversation because I, can't, I can't, can't get emotional on this podcast right now. It's video. <laughs> uh, you know, but to, to see sort of where from there to here where we have become, it was real cool. And right. I'm the third. And I always put the, if, if doctor is in my name, the third is always there. And I was right. interviewed for this book and this person was like, do we have to put the third in your name? And I said, yes. Right. Because I am, I don't want to say the fulfillment, because I mean, I don't have any children. So I guess I am the fulfillment of what they wanted their life to be. Right. So I was like, okay, yeah, you put that third right there. Now, people, right. I know we kind of got off track talking about this. So I hope you're still with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. Um, so you are the director of E-STEM, by the mm -hmm. way, people. You go to that website, I'm telling you. It's going to blow your mind away about the things you're learning about this school. Where are the founding principles of E-STEM and how important is it for students to receive a hands-on dynamic innovation, innovative education? So the founding uh, principles of East Coast STEM Academy, so a little bit of background. So this, the East Coast STEM Academy is kind of, um, it's, it's a newer concept for our district. And so Corona Norco Unified School District is the eighth um, largest, it's either eighth or ninth largest in California. We service about 53,000 students and we have um, uh, 50 schools pretty much. So uh, with the schools, we have five comprehensive high schools. So, um, and it spans three cities, a city of Eastvale, Corona and Norco. And so with that, East Bell is a growing city. It used to be a lot of um, dairy farms. And so they started to build homes. And then so families started to move in. And families really from the Los Angeles area were moving in um, eastward. And so 
there's a high school, there's one high school in that city, um, and it's called Eleanor Roosevelt High School. And so when I actually started there at first as an uh, assistant principal, we were at about 3,200 students. That school was built in 2006. So currently we're at 4,400 students. And so, I mean, and the school was built for 4,000 students. So we actually have students and teachers in portables. And so the question was, okay, so Eastville continues to grow. We anticipate Roosevelt to reach 5,000 students, which is just insanely you know, big. And so the question was, do we build another high school in Eastville? But we know at some point the homes will stop building, the population will level off. And, and so do we open up another you know, multi-million dollar high school only for, to hit, for you know, the um, student population to drop and then we end up with an empty building? Or do we build, um, in addition to Roosevelt High School. So there were talks back and forth. And so it was brought up that, hey, if we're going to build um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, build Roosevelt out, why don't we build with a purpose? And so some conversation was going back and forth. And as we know, the need for STEM education, I think it was even in the principal's um, advisory. I mean, I'm sorry, the president's advisory council report back in what was it, 2014, that said by the year 2020, we're going to have a thousand, you know, uh, or a million um, STEM ready uh, graduates to fill all of these jobs that we have. So, so the talk was, um, so, so we threw out the idea of the STEM high school. Okay, so do we build a STEM high school separate from Roosevelt? Do we attach it? What would it look like? And so we know that with the STEM high school, it may naturally and actually, it does naturally draw those students who are kind of the top students, the students who do wanna go become an engineer or a doctor. And so do we do that and then take the top of the top or the, you know, um, students from Roosevelt and it becomes a brain drain? What, what would that look like? And so it, we all agree that it would be still under the Roosevelt school code. So according to the state of California, we're still one high school, but the STEM Academy will be a separate building, separate administrative team, you know, the students. And so we'll have an internal subcode. Um, but it will still be Roosevelt students. So, so it's called the Eastville STEM Academy of Eleanor Roosevelt High School. But right now we call it East STEM Academy. It's going to have its own building and it's going to be kind of a separate entity internally, if that makes any sense. So with that, our founding principle is access, uh, collaboration, and partnership. Access, we believe in all access for students. So right now we have no GPA requirement. Uh, we're open to any student who has the commitment and the passion and the desire to go into the STEM field and, and they, that they're ready to be um, prepared for that, college and career ready in the STEM field. The second is collaboration. We push for collaboration. That's one of the 21st century skills, you know? We want our students to collaborate and be able to collaborate, not work independently. I always say to our students, you know what? When you're admitted to the emergency room, is it just one person working on you or is it a team of doctors and nurses and, and x-ray techs and all of that? And they say, oh yeah, it's a team. Or when you go to a construction site, is it just one engineer working or is it a team of engineers and, and designers and builders? And so um, in the STEM world or even in the you know, real world, STEM or, or, or non-STEM, we're working in collaborative teams. And so that's one thing that we push for, not only just our students and our, our teachers as well. And then the partnership is so important. We can work with these students for four years and get them college and career ready, but I don't wanna have them you know, walk across the graduation stage and say, okay, adios, you're on your own. No, so I think through partnership is where we're going to be building those bridges from high school to either the industry or to college and help these kids, you know, cross that bridge. And so, so 
access, collaboration, partnership is so important and, and we live by that. And, and we make sure that from our enrollment process to how our teachers collaborate to the project-based learning that our students are involved in, it's collaborative and we're working with our community for partnership. Okay, so now I wanna throw this out there to you because I watched the, the video and you spoke about how there can be students who, I mean, they may not know Shakespeare from a guy on the street, but when it comes to tinkering and being imaginative and building, they excel at that. So right. will, you, will you please speak to the fact that different students have different gifts and how schools must do a better job at recognizing those and, and helping them to further develop them? Right. So, um, so here's a good example. So when you talk about access, we actually have students in the STEM program right now who um, are on IEPs, which are individualized education plans. They are, you know, students who fall under the special ed program. We also have um, students who are on 504 plans, which is general ed, but they have to have accommodations. So here's a good example. So currently we have a student, I will mention name, but he has been, um, he's on the, um, you know, autism spectrum. And he has a couple of D's and F's and, and, you know, we're working with him, but he is so passionate about technology. And so last year he kind of got, you know, red flag. We got red flagged by IT that there's a student who is bypassing IT, you know, and so talk to him a little and say, wait, what you doing? You know, you know, realize his strength is technology. He simply wanted to download Minecraft because he loves to build. And that's what got him focused. And, but he said, you know, I made sure my work was done and I was just sitting at a computer, so I figured it out, okay. So instead of just shutting him down, I said, okay, how can we channel this into a positive, you know? So I brainstormed with the teacher, what can we do with this student, you know? He's not strong academically, but he has this passion and he figured this out. And so we talked about, so we proposed about starting a, um, a student um, technology committee on campus, like, what can we do? So okay, he got excited, he said, let me go home and, and, and create a business plan. So he went home, wrote up this extensive plan of how his students can help teachers and, and help, you know, um, administration, help the school. Of course, you know, we have to put parameters on it. And so he continued that passion, so we fostered it and we let, you know, we, we set, had to set some param parameters so he's not, you know, um, upsetting IT. But he came to us the other day, he said, hey, um, so I developed this app. I said, this app, so, you know, show us. And so he showed this app where it just blew everyone away. He, he developed this app um, where it connects with our database system in the district that um, uh, uploads and, and it, will, um, it will update all the grades on this app. And anytime the grades drop in any class, a student will get a notification. So he developed this app and I'm just thinking, this is a student who is autistic who um, has a couple of D's and F's. And I was a little concerned when he said, I said, before you present this, you might want to get your grades up. He go, oh no, I can change that. I'm thinking, wait, what way are you changing it? Are you gonna just go into the system and hack it? You know, but those are, you know, that's an example of like, this student is just passionate. And of course we have to give them the academic support. So we met as a, as a teacher, a student study team to see how we can, we can help him bring up his grades, which he did. Um, but we also want to be able to foster this innovation and not shut those kids down. So going back to, you know, um, students may not be strong academically, but they can tinker. And so that's why that GPA requirement, we have to remove it. 
because we have students of all different abilities and they have that passion. And if they're passionate about it, I think the whole academic piece will just follow, you know, we can just support him and, and but foster that, those ideas, the innovation and, and help them build the resiliency. If it doesn't work, keep going back and trying it out. Wow, that's nice. He's about to get paid. Right, no, so yeah, so we're gonna take him to Kremlin. We have our ways of kind of getting him to, to, to get this app going because it, it notifies a kid when their grades drop in any class. That is fun. Talk about real time, you know, he, we, he had a, a, a real time problem that he solved. And so that's what we want our students to do is like, you know, sometimes our students are, are looking for answers or trying to solve problems that don't exist yet. And so we want them to think with that mindset, that, in the, you know, being innovative. That is fantastic. So your school, East Them Academy, has two pathways, uh, medical science and engineering and design. What does that look like in practice and how is the curriculum aligned to the real world? Okay, so how we came up with those uh, two pathways is um, through like student survey, like what is it that they would like to see? And then also we, um, we invited like the industry, you know, um, partners and, and asked them, what, what is it that you see? Because we can sit here and, and do computer science and do all kinds of pathways, but they said, you know what? There will always be jobs in the medical, um, by medical science field and engineering. And so those are our two pathways. And so our goal as a student comes in, our goal is to get them high school, you know, to meet the high school credit requirement. That's the minimum. And then our next step, our next goal is to also get them A through G eligible, which is um, in the state of California, when you're A through G eligible, you take X amount of years of courses and different subject areas that you um, are eligible for a UC, which is University, um, California University or the CSU system. So the minimum is you're gonna graduate high school. The next step is our goal is to get you A through G compliant. And now with the college and career index, the whole accountability system in California, we also want our students to be CTE ready. And I think they can be both A through G and CTE, which is pretty much industry ready. So with that, they're still required to take, you know, everything that a, a typical high school, comprehensive high school student has to take. But where we work on that CTE pathway and the pathway is um, their electives. So instead of taking just random electives that students can choose from, we actually have um, courses that build up on each other. So ninth grade, the elective, um, all of our STEM students uh, take an intro to computer science and engineering. And then since all ninth graders have to take biology anyways, we uh, actually hired a medical doctor to teach that class. So she teaches medical bio. So they're getting the medical component and they're getting exposure to the engineering their ninth grade year. So that allows them time to figure out what is it that I really like and what am I passionate about and what class really clicked with me. Then as sophomores, they then have to select either they're gonna go into biomedical or they're gonna go into engineering. And so that's where their electives are. So as sophomores, if you're in medical, you're gonna take medical anatomy and physiology, which is learning about the human body. Um, and then as juniors and seniors, they're going to take classes on pathology because in all honesty, why do we have healthcare? Because people are sick. And so why do people get sick? To, so to understand the virus and the bacteria and the microbiology of all of that. Um, and then the senior year is the prevention and biotechnology. So we incorporate that. Those are all CTE courses. And um, to make it CTE, I guess you can say eligibles because our teachers have CTE credentials. So we're very intentional about that. So not only are they getting that curriculum that is college level, 
they're getting CTE um, completion as well. Same with our engineering. We have, um, so a, a, as a ninth grader, they took intro to engineering. As a sophomore, they would go into CAD um, too, which is, you know, that, that class that most engineers, and that's the feedback we got from the uh, engineering industry is all kids need to know CAD. Um, and then they also have options of robotics, AP computer science, AP, you know, principal. So they have AP and honors options as well. So even CTE pathway has AP and honors options. So we're giving our students a variety of options to meet the college and career index, which is the accountability system from the state. I'm excited about the schools. Right. I'm excited too, and we're only in year two, so excited to see what year three and four are. So we actually got a grant um, last year. We wrote a grant, and it was it was crazy. It was late nights and and just staying late with our our medical bio teacher, um, Dr. Ald, and we sat there and we wrote this uh, grant, and we actually got a grant from the state of California to develop these two course sequence, which is the pathology and the biomedical intervention. So we're excited because. There's not another school in, in uh, high school in California that's offering such classes. So we'll be the first. Wow. So in looking at the pictures, and this really blew me away, right? So I'm looking at the pictures at the, at the school site, and it looks, I'm like, this is Google. This isn't a high school. This is, this is Google, man. Um, <laughs> I've never seen a high school ever look like that. So how does the design of the school play into student in engagement? Well, just to give you a little background on how we came about with the design. So when we started the process, um, it, we, uh, the district had contracted with um, LPA, which is an engineering company, and they're known for um, you know, designing educational buildings and other buildings as well. So the first thing we did was we sat down with them when I went, when I say we, that means myself and our East Falls STEM advisory committee, which is um, made up of students, parents, teachers, and community members. And so we sat down. The first thing we did was like, okay, instead of building a building and then trying to like, you know, blend in or trying to fit in with the building, let's, let's build the building with the idea of um, it's going to best service our kids and really, you know, um, um, Get the kids to be to learn and to collaborate in all of those founding principles so the first thing we did was we profiled what does a 21st century learner look like so it, that conversation was a year-long conversation what does a 21st century learner looks like what is project-based learning looks like what does it mean to be innovative what does it mean to integrate technology and, and hands-on real-world science what does all of that look like and so from there we also visited a couple of um, high schools uh, in Southern California as well as Northern California, what is what are those buildings look like? What did we like? What did we not like? What would work for us and so forth? So after all that, we came up with the idea that we wanted space where um, learning can happen anywhere, whether it's inside the classroom or outside. We wanted collaborative spaces, and that's where we came up with the idea or came up with the design that not a, there's not a single classroom with four walls. On the bottom floor, we have specialized engineering labs as well as medical for both pathways. Um, and we talked about how, you know, the students need to be able to go from like quick lecture to like hands-on, let's move. Okay, we're in this room and now all these rooms are interconnecting. They're gonna go where the hospital beds are and then after they do that, they jump over to the computer so they can see data and, you know, and so all of that, we got so much input from, from all stakeholders that it, it came to the point where we realized this is a building that we want. And this is a building that we think um, 
will really um, promote learning uh, inside and out and promote the collaboration, the innovation, and, you know, and, and transparency. That was very important. We said, someone was to walk through this building, what would we want them to see? And we said, we want, we want to showcase the student learning and the, and the teaching and learning. And so um, there's a lot of glass. There's a lot of, um, in fact, with the engineering company just asked me for some binary codes. So I'm going to send them some, um, I guess you can say quotes or inspirational quotes so we can put it on the glass. We want it engaging and interactive. So when someone walks through, they see a bunch of zeros and ones, which is binary code. I had to look that up, by the way. I wasn't sure what that was. And I want them to say, what does this mean? Okay, let's look it up. You know, oh, this is, you know, be the best at getting better or, you know, you know, uh, collaboration or inquiry and all of that. So we wanted the building to really, um, really just be able to, I guess you can say, foster innovation and, and, and cross-curricular learning um, and just collaborative spaces. Fantastic. I think that's the second part to that. Fantastic. Okay. I'm getting some feedback. Hopefully that won't be on the playback. Um, so now I want to ask you about this because there's been a theme running through this uh, interview about collaboration. I keep hearing collaboration. I keep hearing collaboration. Earlier you mentioned collaborative teams. What does that look like? And how do they work with kids in terms of projects and, and kids sort of discovering themselves and, and what they like to do? So collaborative teams, I guess um, where I'm fortunate, and we even talked about this once we move into the building, because right now our teachers are on the main campus and they're really just where, you know, all over. But we, um, we have built-in collaboration time, teacher collaboration, an hour and a half every week. So our STEM team of teachers, and, and they're from different subject areas, we've got language arts, we have biology, we have chemistry, and they're coming together. And I think um, to them, it, the cross-curricular piece is so important that they collaborate. And we don't just look at, okay, the, the curriculum, we look at the, the whole child. So we've been looking at data. Um, I, I was fortunate enough this year to, um, for HR to give me a, a STEM counselor. So she and I, we run reports, we look at DNF lists. We look at the students who are struggling. We just had progress report. So we sit down as a group, a collaborative group, and we look at each student as a whole. Okay, this kid has multiple Ds and Fs in this class and this class. What, what do we do? What's the plan of action for this student? Yes, does it take time? Does it take work? Yes, it does. But we see the benefit of it when that kid walks into one class and say, well, so-and-so told me you're struggling in that class. Why, you know, was this a pattern? And so when the kid realizes, oh, my goodness, my teachers are talking to each other, it makes such a huge impact. Like the, the students realize they care about me. And so I'm going to work harder for them. Um, and so with the collaboration as well, uh, project-based learning right now, uh, I took a team of teachers to the um, Buck Institute this past summer training for project-based learning. So we came back, so we're in first year of implementation and, and we know we're gonna have some hits and misses, but you know, that's how we learn. So we're working on a, um, a STEM-wide, school-wide project where the students are do, having to do a science fair. Last year was our first year um, submitting to the district and we actually brought home 14 awards and we even went to the county. So for the, that being our first time, we were pretty excited. So um, 
our students are now doing a, a project based learning. All 330 students are doing it, but they don't necessarily have classes together. We gave them choice. You can choose your group, but sometimes they're not in the same class. And, and so what we're doing is all of the teachers, our STEM team said, um, we're going to mentor six, between six to eight groups of students, but we don't see them every day and over the place, but how are we going to do that? So because we're also um, piloting bring your own device, um, we're, our teachers are piloting that. We use Canvas, which is a learning management system, and right now we manage all the groups. All the kids are on. Um, they submit stuff. We check and we give them feedback through there as well as meeting face-to-face, -face. but that collaboration, it wouldn't happen unless we were all collaborating together as teachers and their parents. The parents all have access to Canvas and they love the parent view because they can see real time what their students are doing. And so we make sure that we involve all stakeholders, um, but we're doing this, I guess in a sense, virtual learning where the kids are doing this all online in the evenings, on weekends, and we're able to, to see that and monitor and give them feedback. And this is all outside of class. Wow, that's fantastic. I love this, Dr. Law. Right, and even though I'm administration, I say, give me some groups. And so I've been working with a couple of kids. They've got some outrageous ideas, and you got to kind of bring them back down. And you know, but it's 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 neat to see that their passion. And but it's also good to walk them through the process. Of like, how are you going to control this variable? How are you going to control that? And what are you going to do here if this doesn't work? And then when they come back and say, well, it didn't work. Okay, try again. It's not the end of the world. Try it again. How else can you change this up? So I love being in that. And so as I um, mentioned earlier on our phone call, as leaders, we have to roll up our sleeve and get in the trenches with the teachers because if we just sit back and say, okay, do the work, you don't have that respect and you don't have that motivation in teachers to, to, to work as hard as, as we want them to. And so, um, you know, I think that's very important. So what do you hope for the graduates of East Um, you know, obviously, we want them to be college and career ready, uh, and in our case, in the, in the field of STEM. But really, if it's anything, it's the 21st century skills. We want to prepare them for jobs that don't exist, and I know we hear that all the time. Um, but I want our students to, to be resilient. You know, I see a lot of them, they're so used to, oh, I got straight A's in middle school. How could I get a B? This can't happen. What is going on? And they just, they cry. And I'm like, no, pick up your head and, and go, you know, it's like, don't give up. How can we get better? And so let's, let's get a plan of action. So just the resilience, the grit, um, and just having the ability to, you know, to think and problem solve on their own without a set of directions. If it's anything, it's, it's to be able to go out there and solve problems of the real world and not cry about failure, but to see it as an opportunity to do, to do better and to keep trying. Mm. So before we go, what, it, what are your recommendations for those principals or superintendents who want to replicate the successes of East Elm Academy? I think um, like anything in education, focus on the kids. What is it that, you know, like we said, when we built this program, the school, we focused on the, the learner profile. What does the 21st century student look like and what are their needs? But I think more, I mean, just as important as a process. The process of um, involving all stakeholders, the process of transparency, the process of just involving, you know, industry sector and, and, and colleges. We're working with Norco College right now, which is down the street for dual enrollment. So next year, our STEM students can take 
um, college courses on campus and get college credit. Just look at all, provide all opportunities for the students, but you, you won't get all that input unless you involve all the stakeholders and that process is so important. So just focus on the process of building a school and that's to involve all stakeholders and to be transparent about the communication and everything else. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Law, for being a guest on the show. Thank I you. had an awesome time. I, I literally cannot wait to share this podcast out there and hope that other people will listen to it. Uh, you dropped some awesome gems today. Just, Thank you. Just amazing. Uh, you're welcome. So people, you know how I do this, okay? This is going up on SoundCloud, iTunes. I need you to subscribe and leave a review. This is going up on YouTube. Hey, subscribe as well. And I'm going to share this on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and also a blog post will be going up. So as always, people, invest in you, EDU, peace. Thank you again, Dr. Law, for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me. You are welcome.